Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today we are talking with Katie Ray Bogdan. Katie is an actor, director, and freelance dramaturg currently living and working in the DC metro area. She originally identified exclusively as a musical theater kid, but she fell in love with Shakespeare during her junior year study abroad program, and she has never looked back. Katie recently obtained her master's in theater history and criticism, and she has worked at a variety of DC area theaters, including Roundhouse Theater, the Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, the Maryland Renaissance Festival, Prince George's Shakespeare in the Parks, Free Range Humans, and the Young Playwrights Theater. Katie is currently working on a paper about post-pandemic mentality and death as a character in Measure for Measure, but she just keeps getting distracted by the romance novels on her bookshelf. Never let it be said that she does not contain multitudes. Katie is here with us today to talk about how the Shakespeare industry could improve in terms of body diversity. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her. I cannot wait to share our conversation with you. But first, as always, I got a little high and Katie sipped on her favorite drink. y'all we are back with katie bogdan katie ray bogdan which do you prefer i don't know just call me anything as long as you call me oh okay wonderful well we are talking about all sorts of plague stuff katie what did you do with your pandemic so like many other young millennials i decided to go back to school and get a master's degree ah, and yes. i graduated in December of last year, so 2021, with my master's in theater history and criticism with a focus in dramaturgy, just in time for, you know, all the dramaturgy and literary management jobs to come back after COVID. Well, the sarcasm, you know, is evident. <laughs> At least congratulations on graduating. That's amazing. No, but it was, it was a very informative process having been an actor for so long and knowing that even when I was in my undergrad that I wanted to do more than just perform it is very much informed how I look at acting and I look at directing and just look at play structure going forward it was very amazing I met so many incredible people I got to work on a very very interesting production of Hamlet oh cool over the pandemic 80 minute Hamlet with oh. nine people chef's kiss that's beautiful absolutely working with a hungarian director cool who i'm gonna go on a dramaturgy tangent for just a second do it the the way that europeans handle dramaturgy is very very different from how the u.s does it they dramaturgs in eastern europe are very much a part of the artistic process from the beginning they're writing criticism for the audience to read they're assisting the director so having a director who is coming at it as in come to the auditions give me comments basically assuming what as Americans would see as an assistant director role within the context of a dramaturg and having those open dialogues about the play even as we're in rehearsals was just very revolutionary and something that is like a high benchmark that to me now like every production should be meeting this because this is how we 
when we talk about authentic collaboration, this is what authentic collaboration actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's great. I talked with Jeff Miller at the beginning of the season about like kind of restructuring the like top, the artistic, uh, like producers and all of those things. I'm so high right now. Um, (laughs) talking so smart, um, but basically like rearranging and having it be more collaborative like that. And it just feels like the whole process and everybody involved benefits when it works that way. Absolutely. And especially what was difficult is we were doing the, we didn't get into the theater until the week before tech, if memory serves me. So we were doing, we were blocking the entire show over Zoom. We were doing table work over Zoom. So once we got into the theater, like it really fostered that trust in each other, having that type of process. So that way, once the real work had to happen and we had to really hit the ground running in the theater, it, it just flowed. It just you might be high right now, but I am very tipsy. <laughs> so sometimes my brain will just go. Whoop. As I always say, best part of the show, Shakespeare can't be too smart. It's got to be fun. And that's how we do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I know, that I'm... sounds awesome. Um, yes. And yeah, like if you're going to do an 80 minute Hamlet, you better have an excellent dramaturg on the process to figure out how to make that work. And she, I remember in our first meeting, we were talking and I was coming at it from a very like, oh yes, the text is so important. And obviously, yes, the text is important, but she was like, no, we're gonna change to be or not to be completely. <laughs> and I was like, what, what's happening? And she, she plays fast and loose because sometimes that's what you just have to do. I think that there's a lot of theaters right now, and we'll talk about this later in terms of body diversity in Shakespeare, is that there's this assumed performative history of how we have to do things with Shakespeare. And none of us lived in the 16th century. And so we have no actual complete picture of what it looked like. So why do we continue to do the things that we do using that as the framework versus the people, the ideas, the cultural context of now? Yes, yes. I think it's like, it's similar to the Bible, right? Like a bunch of dudes in between then and now have reinterpreted that text like, he didn't give us the versions of the text that we have. His actors did. So we don't even know if it's really what he wrote. So like, eh, we don't got to be so precious about it. We can have some fun. I love the idea of fucking with to be or not to be. I'm sure that pissed people off, but I love it. Oh, it did. (laughs) Oh, it did. And it also pissed people off to have the dramaturg in the room that aggressively. I think that people weren't used to it. And because it was in the framework of an educational environment, people were very concerned about if this is being done as one person's artistic thesis practicum, how do we differentiate your work versus this work? Which I do understand to some extent, but the idea that 
we have to make that framework exist in art when we're trying to do something not only for us as students, but also the students who are in the play as actors. That's not serving anyone in this process. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, having worked with various directors, like there's no one framework that directors work off of. I've certainly had directors who have been like, I have this specific vision, you will move on this word, go. And I've also had directors who have been like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do. So like, just kind of get up there, do something. I don't know. You kind of have to be malleable like that as an actor anyway. So uh, the director that I did Hamlet with, we did a few months ago, we did a Titus Andronicus Ooh, workshop yeah. um, with just one scene. And it was just so like, she calls it guerrilla dramaturgy, which is basically let's sit around with a pair of scissors and some tape and just cut the text up and put it together and see what happens. Hell yeah. Which was delightful because we had, it was a bilingual version. So it was Hungarian and English. And I feel like there's so much to explore. Being in DC and seeing shows for the past oh my God, almost 10 years now. It's just, I want them to, words are hard. <laughs> I want them to fulfill sometimes what they think they're fulfilling. Yeah, Because I feel like a lot of times I see a show and I'm sold on a concept and I'm sold on an idea that the director or the marketing team or the artistic director is trying to create around this in order to sell tickets. And then I see it and I've seen some productions that absolutely meet that standard and sell me via the choices on what they're doing. But then there are others that I'm like, I have questions. Yes. I have thoughts. Yes. yes. I, uh, I know you saw that one Taming of the Shrew that <laughs> I hate and reference all the time. Um, that's the definitely time. one of them. Where it's the like, how did, how did nobody say anything about this production existing how did it get think about that production more than i should oh me too it lives in my head rent free it's uh it's yeah no that i don't i don't know if a piece of theater has no there's one islands in london pissed me off more than that but um other than that i i don't think i can think of many shows that pissed me off more than that like just even beyond Shakespeare, that was that was pretty bad. My goodness. So yeah, yeah, I I agree with you, and I also agree that when it does meet the standard, it's like stunning and amazing, and you're like, why can't all Shakespeare be like this? The sad part is, I'm trying to think of a production, and I'm sure Pandemic Brain has something to do with this, but in recent memory that I've seen that has met that standard and I'm, I'm coming up short. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know that. part of that has to do with, I feel like me as a master's degree education in theater and a performer, I'm not necessarily the target audience in terms of what theaters are marketing to. Yes, they are marketing to educated upper middle-class people, but I'm coming at it from a different angle than I think a fair amount of some of these audiences are. 
definitely definitely but that should also probably be re-examined a little bit so Mm -hmm. absolutely speaking of which I uh have you here because I feel like post-pandemic we've taken some like some little baby steps toward equity in theater but they're really baby steps and I feel like there's uh, a lot more to be done and so I'm hoping this podcast can be a resource for the future for people to kind of consider like all of the different vantage points from which we need to make the theater community more equitable. With that in mind, Katie, how are we falling short in terms of body diversity and like, how can we do better? So I'll start with this. In the shows that I've seen in the DC metro area, I think I can count maybe on two hands the number of fat people that I've seen on honest, just even on the stage. Yes. In Shakespeare. Um, oh, especially I, in Shakespeare. Yes. Yeah. And if I do see a fat person on stage, they're either in an ensemble role or they are in a role that for some reason, and we'll get into this, that theaters and historians have decided that that role has to be played by a fat person. When in reality, I was in preparation for this, I was looking at this, Shakespeare honestly does not describe people's bodies in terms of fatness and thinness very frequently in any of his plays. Off of the top of my head, the only two that I can think of are Falstaff, yep, the old fat man, mm-hmm. and Fat Nell from Comedy of Errors, who is not a physical character, but is the showpiece of a very uh, boisterous, shall we say, scene between uh, the Antif- one of the Antiphilae and one of the Dromeos. So it is very interesting to me when I see, as a fat person, when I see Romeo and Juliet, for example, where... Almost every production I've seen, the nurse is played by a fat woman. Yep. Which there is a lot of language that maybe obliquely references that she might be fat in terms of the act, particularly in act two, scene four and act two, scene five with uh, Mercutio going, a sail, a sail. And then when Juliet is talking about how, oh, she's not moving as fast. And then when the nurse comes in that she's like, oh, my body hurts, ah, blah, blah, blah. I'm in so much pain. Um, but there's never actually a reference to her being fat. Yeah, like there's honestly was... not even a reference to her. There's only a few references also to her being old. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Like it could be an age thing, but like that could be anything. She, she's moving a lot in the play. <laughs> she's, she's running around the city trying to find these boys for three hours. We didn't have cars, like. On those cobblestone streets, in those shoes. (laughs) So it's it's interesting, just the fact that, again, going back to this assumed performance history, we've seen it so many times in these earlier adaptations that we just assume that this is the way the role should be played, and it doesn't have to be played that way. I think that, and this is going even outside of that representation in Shakespeare, theater makers, theater directors, and theater actors need to think about when they talk about 
how Shakespeare is for everyone, that they need to put some power behind those words. That looking at the language of Shakespeare, it is very universal, just in the fact that there aren't a lot of descriptions in terms of what these people are supposed to look like, in terms of what these people are supposed to sound like. That if we opened up, if we stopped looking in the box that we've seen these plays in for so many years, that we really can open up Shakespeare to, this is what the world looks like. This is what our world looks like. This is what the world of the play looks like. Um, and also that fat people being in a Shakespeare play is not ruining any aesthetic that you have set up. That sometimes in terms of comments that directors are making or having costumers, we're like, oh, we can't put this person in the play because we're renting these costumes and they won't fit into those costumes. If you're a theater that has $2 million as an operating budget, you can make a new costume. Amen. Like period. If you, <laughs> if you can put an entire car on stage, you can make a costume for a, for a fat person. Which ironically, one of the shows that I saw where they put a car on stage was actually one of the only times I think I've seen a fat person in a Shakespeare play. <laughs> but also that when we, in terms of thinking about like the plays and kind of how we describe people, if we continue along the lines of we're only going to cast straight-sized people in romantic roles and we're going to have fat people be the secondary characters, that very, very few times are the secondary characters being referred to as fair or beautiful or pretty. And when you as an audience member see that only the thin person is being described as that way, and that the fat person is being described as the butt of certain jokes, whether or not it's related to their fatness whatsoever, it's reinforcing the cultural assumption that only thin people deserve to fall in love and be the main character. And that fat people are a secondary character relegated to those people's stories. Yes. When in fact, in the real world, fat people fall in love. Fat people make mistakes, fat people, don't have to be this kind of like perfect, funny sidekick at all times. They have, I'm trying, oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember the, not Amelia. I mixed Othello and Amelia. It's the <laughs> Amelia monologue, which she talks about women. It's like, we have tastes. We have our appetites for sweet and sour. It's like that to me is very much also how I see the relationship between thin and fat and Shakespeare. It's that we are not just this tiny box that our fatness can also, and how we experience the world as fat people can inform how we perform in some of these traditionally thin roles that have been cast in Shakespeare, that we can bring a different refraction to those roles and how those roles exist in opposition to these other characters within the play. I think a lot about in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's 13. There's no reason why, if you're actually going to try and cast it as they are teenagers, but even if they're casting it as adults, there's no reason, there's no description that I could find when I was looking at it, that Juliet necessarily needs to be thin. She, they're, they're talking about how fair she is. All the physical descriptions, particularly when Romeo sees her, are about just how she looks in the light and how the light is glowing off of her. 
but there's no nothing about ah she's so slender she looks like a thin piece of grass whipping through the wind um and something that i keep coming back to in terms of the balcony scene and how they relate to each other is in her thou knowest the mask of night monologue the scan is does thou love me thou and me are where the accents are and i just feel like it's something very powerful to see a fat person say that and ask that question versus does thou love me that you have like it's just the tiniest line but just imagining how you see those characters interact in that moment and having someone ask that question of another person and then having them respond with yes i do that is so lovely like it's the most simple thing but i love i i love that it lit quite literally scans um <laughs> but i also just love that idea and would love to see it on stage as as you said like there are no like tiny boxes i was literally thinking that like i saw you play one of the witches this summer and when i left i was like what the fuck why have i never seen a fat person play one of the witches that doesn't make any sense at all there's nothing what the, the, the only <laughs> physical description about the witches is that they're haggard and if you're doing the full cut which we did not do is that they have beards yep dumb yeah. and it's like it is really interesting i truly just googled i was like fatness in shakespeare and i think the only references i found were falstaff there is a reference where in julius caesar it's either anthony or brutus is like come let me have men who are fat just all of the fat a lot of the fatness references are about people they're used either as metaphors uh there's one it was like if i honestly don't even remember what play it was but it was those who eat surfeit will go grow sicker than those who eat nothing there's just very few references to fatness in general. And then to have really only two be about an actual person and yet having the having this kind of assumedness that, oh, these are the roles for the fat people. And in terms of Falstaff, honestly, most of the time, not even played by an actual fat person, but by a celebrity or a star actor in a fat suit. Yep, yep. Or even, like, I mean, not to diminish anybody who's like more medium sized but a lot of the times when i have seen it they have been bigger than most of the other people in the cast but they haven't been like fat necessarily um yeah also when we talk about fat i we're not even talking about like someone who has like the huge round belly like the santa ho 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 but also just pe like I would love to see just like a really brawny, thick man play Macbeth. Yes. And just and completely obliterating people on the it battlefield. It makes sense periodically too. I mean, like in that time period, if you're fat, it's because you're well-fed, which means you are in the upper class. Like we Indeed. should be seeing people like that play all of those roles. And because that the beauty standards have shifted that's why we're not seeing it yep and i i think i can understand because as i was thinking about this question there are certain roles 
that I worry that if I were to see it, that despite the fact that a fat person is playing it, if a director doesn't take care to make the relationship be about the actual emotion or the text versus the physical bodies on stage, Mm. that you can end up with productions where reviewers are only commenting on, hmm, it's interest like that. Oh, that's the Romeo and Juliet where the fat girl played Juliet, which also sucks. There was a production that I, I didn't get to see it in DC, but I saw the review And it was just, instead of talking about one of the actors, it was, let me talk about this actor's body for an entire paragraph. So that's another thing we need to change. Yeah, that's infuriating. The physical body of the person doing the acting matters far less than the actual act of acting itself. There's this idea that fat or thick, as they described the actor in the article, that those bodies cannot produce the same level of work that thin bodies can. This was something that you see even in educational settings. I I will never forget being in ballet class and not even the instructor. Another student looked at me and was like, I'm really surprised at how good at dancing you are. No. No. And there is that stereotype that fat equals unhealthy and unable to do certain things. Yet I just did Richard III at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. And I was, we had this massive sword fight for the Battle of Bosworth Field. And I straight up murdered two people. Yeah, you did. People were commenting more about my skill as a swords person versus I'm so surprised at how good you are at this with the implication being that because I'm a larger person that I would not be able to do those things, which was very refreshing that people were having, using that perspective on the issue. And I think that moving forward in terms of kind of speaking at the equity level, not even, because honestly at the non-union level, at least in my experience, I can only speak about my experience. I have had pretty good luck with directors being like, I will see you as your talent versus your body. I, speaking of our friend, Jeff Miller, I did a production of Midsummer. It was a three person shortened version of Midsummer, And I looked at them in rehearsal and it was the first day. And I was like, Jeff, I think this is the first time I've ever been cast in a romantic role that has nothing to do with my size. That's in dumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes, I was playing five other characters, but I was also playing Hermia. But still, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I I think as, as you were talking about, like, especially like, A, not seeing fat people in those romantic leads, but also like fat people are capable of doing so many more things with their body. I don't know if you saw Much Ado at Chesapeake. Um, Unfortunately. But Dylan Arredondo played Benedict and he's oh, I love. Fat. and then um Kate Fortin played Hero and she's fat. And one of the coolest things about that production was like Dylan as Benedict was so physical, like the most physical Benedict I've ever seen. And that physicality was a large part of 
like what made that role funny. But on the other end of the gambit, like Kate Fortin was like so simple. She barely moved the whole show. But it was the first time I've seen that play that I was like, I get why Claudio fell in love with her. Like she just, even though she barely moves, she has this presence and this twinkle in her eye and that's enough. Like that was all she needed for me to be like, ah, I would be in love with that hero. I get it. Like, cool. And it was so cool to see exactly that. Like, okay, fat people are capable of these two complete ends of the spectrum. Why not? Like, Why not? Come on. Exactly. Because we're all individuals that bring different things i know what what an outrageous concept individuals being able to bring their specific life experience their specific skill set to a role i i feel so bad that i didn't get to see it well i was doing yes yes obviously probably why which is awful because chesapeake when they perform in the summer is 10 minutes away from my house but alas i was running around prince george's county which and shut up chanting <laughs> chanting things to the ether which was, so was delightful fun. but I know. the three of you were great i love that play but honestly i'm going to that i'm currently working on a i want to do a 13 person cut of macbeth um that we'll see where that goes but i was working on it and again it's very little language about the physical being and the physical description of the person. There's a lot of gendered language. Yeah, in Macbeth, Which surprised me because the cut that we had used was particularly, it was more focused on the violence versus the gender dynamic, which was exciting in its own way. But it is truly baffling that there's a poem that I saw once and it was, this was more in terms of like musical theater than Shakespeare, but it was, we see these shows where we can, we can believe in the existence of flying monkeys and all of these fantastical creatures, yet we can't believe that a fat person can fall in love. Yeah, yeah. No, that's like, I think the third episode this season, Steph Craniola came on and was like, I have been told over and over that like, I can't play a role like Rosalind because nobody would believe I'm a man because my boobs are too big. It's like, what? like what but like Hermione just is not a statue anymore like yeah there's fairies in the woods of Athens like why are there things we we can stretch our imagination for but these stupid silly like deeply personal things are the things that we're like no 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 we can't we mustn't dare oh no that would upset the boat too much you can't have it. That's that's so interesting. Well, I also remember us being in an audition together, both of us being of the age to play Juliet, and yet both of us being called back for, you were called back for Lady Capulet, and I was yes. called back for the nurse. Yes. And I was just, I think you were two years out of college. I had just graduated. And I'm sitting there with all of these like very, very talented 40-year-old women, 40-year-old fat women, like who are absolutely killing it. And I was like, why am I not getting seen for Juliet? It's very, it's because it's very clear this is what you're going for. And I'm happy that you like me enough to call me back. But yeah, 
where there's a disconnect there's a disconnect here yes like it's just kind of like but when I'm sitting next to these 40 year old women I know you're not going to cast me in this role because I I have a a sneaking suspicion you're Mm. not doing some crazy creative like concept where the nurse is the same age as Juliet somehow yes raised Wait, her honestly breastfed her more <laughs> more productions need to cast the nurse I think as a late 20s early 30s as well I would love to see that because if Juliet's young enough if as 13 to be having children it's feasible that the nurse at some point at 13 was having children and that's why she had to nurse Juliet I think the nurse would be great as like a like very sexy woman like coming in she reminds me a lot of Margaret in Much Ado that she's like, I think they would be very close friends, Margaret yes. and the nurse. Yes. And they would just hang out and talk about their sex lives <laughs> and just stupid men. And the shit the weird people around their houses do, like, good God. She's like, <laughs> the nurse is like, I have to take a vacation. I have to visit my cousin in Messina. Goodbye. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I, yeah, I also feel like in a kind of beautiful way that would make the nurse's story about having lost a child around Juliet's age so much more tragic and also their relationship much more mother-daughter than Lady Cap and Juliet's relationship like I think when I see the that pairing the nurse and Juliet I feel like every time I see it no matter how talented the actresses are in that scene that, speaking about act two, scene five, that, cause I feel to me that is the time when they are at their most, this is our dynamic outside of the feud, outside of me being under Lady Capulet's purview, yeah. that they're the most themselves. And I feel like when you see that scene and it's just a bunch of fat jokes about how the nurse can't get around, it diminishes a very important relationship in the play. And there's plenty of comedy to be found elsewhere. To me, that's the other thing. It's so it's such low-hanging fruit. Like, to be yeah. quite honest, there's so many funny things in Shakespeare's text, even in the tragedies, that you can highlight. And I think that a lot of audiences are actually smart enough to understand than resorting to this very low-brow humor. To me, the nurse's track through Romeo and Juliet has a huge influence on Juliet as a character. Her, like aside from her basically being able to engineer the marriage, her shift in act four, when she is very much like, I'm going to, like, I think you should marry Paris is such a huge shift for Juliet because it's so different than how she's seen this, this person that she loves deeply and plunges her to the lowest low and makes it really drive like it's such a driving force in the play and to make it just look at this very young thin woman and this old fat woman and oh look isn't it funny that they're friends is such a disservice to those women as characters i i agree when you first brought that up i thought immediately of that moment in act four and it's because like it comes in threes like it shouldn't shock you that lord capulet does what he does it should make you a little uncomfy that lady capulet does what she does 
but it should gut punch you that the nurse does that, that the nurse is like, I'm sorry. I think this is the end. Like I, I can't help you anymore. Like that, the fact that she was her help, that she was her adult the whole time, like that should, should sting. So I agree. That's a good scene. And it's just so like, it really should just absolutely rip your heart out. Like you as an audience member, but then you also have that oh shit moment of this this girl is about to just go nuclear and go on the loose because I, I know we laugh sometimes about the memes and it's like ah yes this letter this misplaced letter causes everyone to die but it makes sense if you're actually emphasizing these very very well-crafted emotional journeys that these characters are going on instead of making it about this large concept that to a lot of the audiences are like why 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 this choice why are we why are we setting it this way instead of actually going into the text that is my other thing is that there's so many theaters that are like we are so about the text the text the text if you were so about the text why is everyone on your stage thin and white because they unfortunately see that as the standard and they exactly. they don't see anything yeah. wrong with it. And it's so interesting. During the pandemic, I was doing some, when I did my comps for my master's, I wrote about minority representation in Shakespeare at the New York Shakespeare Festival. Oh, cool. And it was very interesting to, I was doing some research into this Twitter account that shows uh, images, surviving images and surviving accounts of people of color in the medieval and Renaissance period. And that this woman gets death threats consistently for being honest about, hey, people of color existed at this time. It's okay to let that exist in your small brains. And people just can't handle that. And I think that's also just part of the problem outside of just theater, that we can't accept that this, at this period when Shakespeare is writing, that there were other people living and that Shakespeare, while it is such a part of our culture, was one man on a tiny island in the midst of this massive world. I think that kind of in summary, of what we've all just been kind of talking around in general. People and working in theater need to open their minds more to what the texts can be, to what the people populating these texts can be, because in the end, people aren't going to not come to see these shows because a fat person is in it. People are coming because it's a recognizable property in some cases because of the theater that it's being performed at, but the people who are on stage, depending, because I know there are some people who would rather not see some of these, some marginalized groups on stage, but in the grand scheme of things, there are more people who are going to see the plays because of the plays than the people who aren't going to see the plays because of who's on stage. Amen. That, that's like enough. Yeah, like... Oh, God. It keeps drifting away, Katie. 
it's there and then it goes I'm like in my I'm in my like higher academia brain right now no it's great I love it if if you were to see the me it's like that meme of the galaxy brain I'm just like go I don't I never have a chance to just like talk for an hour about all of my thoughts on Shakespeare no I love I when you offered yourself up I was like yes you're perfect for this please um yeah, I think, oh, what I was going to say is just, it's a repeat from last episode, but it's that like, for all of the people out there who are intentionally gatekeeping the shit out of Shakespeare, like, part of why I wanted to do this podcast is because I know myself at 18, sitting in Utah, not having access to as many BIPOC people or as many queer people to have these conversations, it was less of a matter of like, oh, I want to intentionally keep people out of this and more of a matter of like, oh, I'd never thought of that before. Like, this isn't an experience that I had under my belt. So I hadn't thought about trying to put something on stage this way or why somebody should be in this role for whatever reason and my hope is that like listening to these conversations that like yeah for as many people in New York or Boston or DC who at least have access to theaters who are experimenting with some of these things there will also be little Michaela's out there who are like oh shit there's a whole world out there I haven't explored yet um, and conversations I haven't had yet. So, yeah. There are so many ways to illuminate how we think about these texts. And you're speaking to exactly that, that there's such a rich tapestry. The fact that we're still talking about this and there are still new ways to think about these plays 400 plus years in the future just speaks to how the infinite number of possibilities that there are. And it does, it's not authentic to the study and the performance of to limit ourselves. And it's not authentic to the current world we live in. There's, there's only, it can only improve by adding diverse voices in my mind, yes. in, in every way, in people of color, in, gender identity, in sexuality, in neurodivergent, in fat versus thin. I There is just so much to explore about these texts and so many fun ways to look at it outside of these, let me set this play in this, in, in this way that I think is interesting. To me, honestly, at this point, setting the text in the original period with a diverse cast is honestly more revolutionary than let me create this elaborate structure that only fits a certain few moments of the plays uh-huh. and is going to leave me scratching my head for the rest of the time as an audience member. You think I gotta just do the work. Yeah, just put a bunch of talented, Don't. diverse bodies on stage. Yes. Like, they'll probably and do that's half gonna the require- work for you. <laughs> exactly. And yes, that is going to require some awkward conversations, most likely. And as theater people, we should not be concerned about awkward conversations. We have them all the time. Agreed. I mean, we have to be so brave to do what we're doing at all, be in this industry at all. So 
what's one more courageous conversation exactly yeah i love that courageous conversation that's that's one of jonathan's favorite terms i've adopted it oh i love it that's great and you can tell you can tell him that too i will i I approve (laughs) i will for sure well before we wrap up katie do you have anything else that you would like to add Thank you for having me. This is just the perfect confluence of everything I love. Talking about representation, talking about Shakespeare, talking to you. So thank you for having me. I love it so much. Of course, I'll be totally honest and say when I uh, threw my Facebook fishing line out there, I was hoping you were going to bite. So I'm, I'm very glad to have had you on the show. All right, y'all. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Katie and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps ever so much. And tune in next week as we talk about plague stuff with Terrence Fleming. Until then, bye all. A thousand, thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.